The following program is presented by the National Committee on United States-China Relations, www.ncuscr.org. We have with us today two of America's most accomplished exports, experts on the U.S.-China relationship, Ambassadors Jeff Bader and Stapleton Roy. I could take up the entire call listing their accomplishments, but instead will only say they are both the experts' expert, those in academics, government, business, and the think tank world, including yours truly, rely on the expertise of Stape and Jeff to understand the relationship. Let's start with Jeff discussing the lead up to the meeting and the meeting itself, and then move on to Stape to talk about what we can expect in the future. I'll then ask a few questions and open the floor to questions from all of you on this call. Jeff Stape, thank you for your time on this call. Your support of the committee, Stape is a vice chair and Jeff a director, and thank you for your contribution to the relationship. You both deserve the Lifetime Achievement Award. Jeff. Uh, thanks very much, Steve, and great to do this with Stape. Um, uh, let me start with how this meeting came about. Uh, the White House and the Chinese both looked at the calendar in 2013, and they saw that the first natural opportunity for a meeting between President Obama and President Xi was uh, September at the G20 meeting in St. Petersburg. And the feeling was that that was uh, too long to wait with um, uh, all that's on the agenda, with the desire to get the uh, relationship for Obama's second term and Xi's first term uh, uh, accelerated, kind of jump-started. Um, feeling that if we waited until September, uh, drift uh, would set in. So there was some disposition on the part of both sides, I wouldn't say one more than the other, uh, to try to find a way to arrange an earlier meeting. Uh, it was difficult. In the normal course of events, it would have been Obama's turn to go to China uh, since Hu Jintao last came here, and of course Xi Jinping came here as vice president. Um, there was some exploration of whether or not they could do it in Europe on the margins of the G8 in Northern Ireland, and it was concluded that that didn't really work very well. Uh, and finally, um, uh, the White House came up with the idea of doing it in California um, and carving out uh, parts of two days for a, uh, a long special meeting. Um, the Chinese were enthusiastic about it. They were able to arrange a trip by Xi Jinping uh, to Central America around that. Um, and uh, I think the real news here is that the fact that she was willing to do it. Normally, as you know, the Chinese don't do um, first visits by leaders or even any visits by leaders to the U.S. unless they're state visits to Washington, D.C. with all the protocol, the welcoming ceremony, the 21-gun salute, the state dinner. Um, and the fact that uh, Xi Jinping was willing to do this uh, informally uh, in California, uh, I think spoke to how important he felt it was to get together with Obama early in his term. And the idea for the meeting was it would be somewhat informal. Um, they were hoping for a, a relatively unscripted conversation, uh, feeling that Xi Jinping was a different kind of leader than we've had in the past in China and would be comfortable with that kind of a setting. Uh, I think it was not as unscripted uh, as perhaps the uh, higher ambitions for the meeting would have had it. I think, uh, I think certainly President Xi felt he had to say certain things um, for his audience back home. Um, and so the, I would not describe it as a conversation with many backs and forths, 
but they did have eight hours together, um, uh, including one hour alone. And um, the, the way it broke down was they had two hours in the first afternoon talking about uh, their strategic visions uh, for the future, uh, domestic uh, and foreign and priorities, then uh, dinner concentrating on political security issues, uh, and then the next morning talk about economic issues. Um, basically, uh, in, sort of in terms of overall objectives, I think uh, the Chinese were, uh, they stressed the desire for a new type of great power relationship, a phrase you've heard a lot of lately. Um, and uh, uh, there wasn't much fleshing out of the concept beyond what we already know, namely that uh, what it seems to mean on the Chinese side is the desire to avoid the classic confrontation or conflict between a rising power and a dominant power, uh, a view that we, of course, share. To the extent that there's content in it on the Chinese side, the American side came away thinking that what the Chinese basically meant by it and fleshing it out was respect for their core interests and their preeminence in Asia. Uh, President Obama's uh, version of the new type of great power relationship uh, was uh, much more, it had to be based on adherence to international norms, um, reflect the willingness of great powers to be bound by those norms and concrete uh, cooperation in resolving issues. Uh, in terms of specific issues, let me just run through them quickly. Um, North Korea obviously occupied a good deal of time. Um, the Chinese, uh, she essentially confirmed what we've been hearing for the last few months, namely that the Chinese have changed their emphasis uh, from stability at all costs on the peninsula to uh, the paramount need for denuclearization. Uh, she made clear he would not accept uh, a nuclear North Korea. Uh, he didn't make any excuses for North Korean behavior or push the U.S. to engage in talks. Uh, Obama, for his part, said we're willing to talk to Pyongyang, but that's different from negotiating with him, um, which has to be on the basis of denuclearization commit, uh, commitments. Uh, on maritime issues, South China Sea, East China Sea, uh, I think she laid out familiar positions on Chinese sovereignty. Uh, Obama pushed for peaceful resolution and adherence to norms. Um, no, we take no position on sovereignty, but um, we, that shouldn't be mistaken for indifference to behavior, uh, pushed for a code of conduct, and for restraint by all. Uh, military, military relations came up, um, and there was a positive discussion about that. Uh, human rights, um, Obama raised it. Uh, she, as he's done publicly, acknowledged that China has a long way to go. It's still a developing country. And uh, Obama described the place of human rights in the human in the uh, the U.S. system uh, in our DNA, and it will always be a factor in our uh, approach. Uh, on Taiwan, uh, it was a somewhat familiar uh, discussion with uh, Xi emphasizing one China principle, objection to U.S. arms sales. Uh, I wouldn't say the temperature was uh, was tremendously high, uh, and uh, President Obama uh, stressing our adherence to. Uh, one China policy, uh, the, the Taiwan Relations Act, and the three joint communiques, and noting the importance of the uh, people of Taiwan in um, assessing uh, the future. Um, uh, there was some discussion uh, of uh, Japan in connection with the, um, the East China Sea uh, dispute, um, and uh, uh, I think what she said was familiar with what we've been hearing from the Chinese generally on the issue concerned about the direction in which um, uh, Japanese politics 
may be moving, um, the concern over history issues, um, and laying out the Chinese position on the Jiaoyu-Sengaku Islands, and uh, President Obama talking about the need for restraint by both sides, um, the uh, uh, alliance between the U.S. and Japan, um, and the fact that democracies uh, don't swing too wildly and one should not be uh, uh, concerned about a return to an imperial era. Um, on economic issues, um, uh, Xi Jinping laid out his plans for reform, um, consistent with the kinds of statements you've seen publicly by Premier Li Keqiang and State Council edicts. Um, he said that China uh, needs to and hopes to have a 7% growth rate for the next few years. Uh, it needs to move towards consumption-driven growth, uh, development of its service sector. Um, he cited uh, uh, areas where China's uh, manufacturing and production were uh, out of line with market needs and what markets could absorb. Um, uh, he made familiar complaints about U.S. export controls, uh, restricting high-technology exports to China, uh, advocated for Chinese investments in the U.S., including in infrastructure projects, um, expressed interest in being briefed on the Trans-Pacific Partnership but not in joining. Um, there was support expressed for uh, investment and for bilateral investment treaty by both sides. The renminbi issue was mentioned only in passing. And the cyber issue, uh, Obama embedded his presentation on cyber in the economic uh, discussion. Uh, he said, that, in essence, that the U.S. is an innovation-based economy, uh, that that's where our competitive edge lies, that attacks on U.S. companies go to the core of our competitiveness, um, cited examples, and said this was unacceptable and intolerable, that theft of U.S. trade secrets to give uh, foreign companies a competitive advantage was going on and was out of bounds. He said this is the real cyber issue, not the other uh, uh, the other issues that have been discussed. Uh, this is really the core concern of the United States. And Xi Jinping replied that China has been the victim of hacking. A familiar uh, response. Um, didn't respond directly on the intellectual property point and just noted that we should work cooperatively to address cyber concerns and referred to the working groups and set up by both sides. Uh, the, the, um, the only other point I mentioned is there was an agreement on uh, uh, HFCs, on um, the hydrofluorocarbons, on the limitation of, uh, uh, of emissions of them and to discuss it under the Montreal Protocol. It sounds kind of wonky, but it actually was considered by the White House rather important. It's uh, 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 a change in the Chinese position to agree to uh, uh, accept the mandatory limitations imposed by the Montreal Protocol to take it out of the Copenhagen uh, process, and uh, it would reduce in significant, uh, result in significant reduction of emissions. Uh, the Chinese came up with this position just a few days before the summit, and uh, both sides decided to roll it out. So um, that's basically all I'd highlight from the, from the meeting itself. Perfect. State. Uh, yes, that, uh, th I, I think Jeff provided an excellent uh, summary of the way that the summit meeting proceeded. I'd like to make some comments about the background, which is important understanding the significance of the talks that the two presidents had. Uh, there's no question, looking back over the last five years, 
that the financial crisis in 2008 was a destabilizing factor in the U.S.-China relationship to a greater extent than was appreciated uh, uh, at the time. Uh, the Chinese uh, felt that their international status had been increased significantly because their economy recovered rapidly. And there was a pervasive feeling in Asia that the United States was a declining power. I think both of these were overreactions to what happened. But the fact is it resulted and contributed to a more assertive pattern of Chinese behavior in, uh, in East Asia that caused them difficulties with their neighbors. Then a series of developments uh, in, on the Korean Peninsula with the transition there, uh, the U.S. reaction to North Korean reactions was seen by many in China as aimed at China instead of at North Korea. We had uh, the emergence of the island disputes, which became more acute after 2010, caused many Chinese to see the United States as lining up with those who were creating the threats as seen by the Chinese to their territorial sovereignty over the islands. So that polling showed that there was a sharp drop in China of those who saw the U.S.-China relationship as a cooperative one and a significant increase in the number of ordinary Chinese and government officials who felt that the relation was becoming a hostile one. This was much more apparent in China because the island disputes were a matter of concern to ordinary Chinese, whereas in this country most people don't know where the islands are. But the trend was toward a negative public opinion in China, and in the United States the growing concern about the cyber theft that many of our companies have experienced and was souring the attitude in the business community, which had been one of the strong pillars of support for the U.S.-China relationship. Add to this the fact that the Chinese military budget was, grow was growing and that our military was uh, not prepared to yield to the Chinese uh, from the standpoint of maintaining our ability to defend U.S. interests in the, in the Western Pacific. So the trend in the relationship was moving toward growing strategic rivalry. This is the background for Xi Jinping moving in as the new top leader in China, and President Obama uh, got reelected through an election campaign during which there had been far more negative commentary uh, uh, on the U.S.-China relationship uh, than had been the case uh, a, a few years earlier. So. It's very significant that both top leaders have concluded that the trend toward growing strategic rivalry was damaging to the interests of their respective countries. And they essentially have reached a consensus on the view that they have to, through trying to create a new type of great power relationship, reverse that trend by essentially leadership intervention to try to move us in a better direction. And this summit was essentially the first effort to translate that into practical understandings on each side that can help to shape how under President Xi and President Obama over the next four to ten years, uh, we can try to reverse this trend toward growing strategic rivalry. Uh, in that respect, uh, 
the summit was very successful because it opened up possibilities for us to engage. It reinforced the engagement we're already engaging in and opened up possibilities for moving in new areas. Uh, it was significant, for example, that the Chinese side, which has been standoffish uh, until recently in terms of expanding the military-to-military relationship, uh, was is now talking about creating a new type of military-military relationship between the two countries. Uh, and the Chinese have displayed uh, eagerness uh, uh, in their top military officials in expanding exchanges with the United States in this area, which is one of the least developed areas of the bilateral relationship. But it extended to other areas as well. As Jeff has already touched on, the, the period of tension over Korea uh, that was marked by the period 2010-2011, uh, where we and China seem to be having growing strategic differences and where we seem to have failed on our common goal of trying to prevent the North Koreans from developing a nuclear capability, uh, has been replaced by a reaffirmation of the fact that both countries feel that the denuclearization issue is an area where we have common strategic interests and can work together. So the Chinese, I, can, I go way back in terms of dealing with the Chinese and Korean issues, and I can remember when it was very difficult to engage them in constructive discussions on the subject, and now we find at the presidential level that we are seeing this as an area of agreement rather than of disagreement. So I think that's significant. The second thing, I think, to reinforce what uh, the points that Jeff made, I have sat in on a significant number of U.S.-China presidential uh, meetings. Uh, at times, these meetings have been so awkward that it was literally embarrassing. Uh, it, the leaders, in some cases, even used three-by-five five cards to make their points to each other. They were stilted. You had very limited time because of the translation problem that intruded, and each side had to make their necessary points uh, about issues that were important to each country so that you really never had a chance to engage in a serious way. If the president and president, if the two presidents had put off their first meeting to on the fringes of the G20 meeting in St. Petersburg, they might have had an hour of time to try to cover this question of how do you go about creating a new type of great power relationship. Uh, we don't have any templates out there to know how to go about this. But at the Sunnylands Summit, they had extended opportunities uh, in various degrees of formality uh, to begin to engage on these questions. And they seem to have done so very effectively, so that if you look at the briefings that came out from the summit on both sides, uh, they both struck positive notes about where we want to go. Now, I think this is important because... We, we needed from the two presidents a sense of strategic direction on where we want the relationship to go. And I think that has been provided more clearly now than ever before that both sides want to move the relationship in a positive direction. I've just been in two days of discussions with a senior Chinese delegation here, and I was struck by how positive they are now in terms of trying to move our relationship in the right direction. There's a lot of hard work that has to be done, but 
we now have all sorts of mechanisms for helping to move this forward. Within a month, we'll have the, G, uh, the um, strategic and economic dialogue, at which we'll begin to get some feedback as to whether the discussions at the summit between the two top leaders is being reflected at the uh, senior uh, official levels uh, in dealing with specific issues that can be discussed in that forum. Following that, we have the people-to-people um, uh, senior dialogue that we've been holding in recent years that will also be able to continue exploring these areas. And we've been having uh, a growing number of exchanges of our top officials. Uh, our Treasury Secretary, our Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, our National Security Advisor, our Secretary of State have all been to China in the last few months. And they've invited the Chinese Defense Minister uh, and the Chinese Foreign Minister to come to this country. They're talking about having a follow-up informal meeting in China uh, that probably won't take place until next year, but we'll use a similar format permitting extended discussions rather than the rather hurried discussions that take place under normal summit conditions. So I think that the general outcome of the summit is a constructive one, and the language that the administration is using now to describe their goal with China is to have a stable, productive, and constructive relationship. And I think you can describe the, the uh, conversations uh, in Sunny Lands as fitting that model. Perfect beginning to this discussion, both of you. Just terrific, terrific kind of introductions. The, um, but we, when, when uh, Gretchen, it's interesting, you talk about the, the time for translation. When they took their walk together, was were they fitted with earpieces for simultaneous translation? No, 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 no. Was there <laughs> sequential? What happens is the, phot the photographers ask the interpreters to get out of the picture so they can show the two presidents strolling together. But in reality, they were accompanied by interpreters. There was a delegation who was into... We had a, a delegation here the other day, and they suggested that actually... There was, and they actually, there were two non-English-speaking members of this delegation, and rather than have everyone speak in Chinese and translate it, they had a portable, simultaneous translation device, and they literally listened to it as they were walking along and suggested that that's what Obama and, uh, and Xi had had, but I guess that's not the case. It would make for a better interaction. Uh, Jeff, did you hear anything differently? But my experience is that they are accompanied by interpreters when they go well, off they on a stroll like but that. They, but they literally going on simultaneously as opposed to sequentially. Yeah. Uh, my assumption is the same as Dave's, that the, uh, that, that the interpreters were two or three steps behind. I don't know that for a fact, but um, we generally tend not to be very high-tech on interpreting. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff, was there opposition, you think, in China to this visit? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I'd use the word opposition. I would say that there probably was reluctance and a certain hesitation on the part of uh, probably within the bureaucracy and maybe among some other leaders as well, simply because it was so unusual. And uh, the expectation is that there would be a, a state visit in one direction or another. And as you know, within Chinese culture and Chinese civilization, uh, the protocolary aspects and the celebratory aspects of a visit 
uh, a meeting like this loomed so large that what you were looking at here was uh, really kind of a bold step by Xi Jinping to do it. Um, and I think it's not the, it would not have been the normal instinct of, of most people in the system. So I don't know for a fact that there was opposition, but I assume he had to overcome at least uh, at a minimum hesitation. I think that Jeff is right, but I think that there may have been a similar uh, 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 reaction in some levels on the U.S. side. Both sides are describing the format for this summit as unique, and bureaucracies often uh, uh, struggle against uh, doing things in ways that have not been done before. But I think fortunately on both sides there were senior officials who saw the necessity of having an early meeting between the two leaders, and I think the two leaders were thinking the same way. So whatever ex resistance there may have been was overcome and was overcome uh, at the right levels. There weren't pitched battles on this question. What do you think it tells us about C? He stood there without notes, you know, not only with the, the, the reference to note cards in the meetings, when, it, when he gave his public statements, he does it without notes. Well, he did that when he became the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. He also departed from the earlier rather uh, stilted way that uh, 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 Chinese leaders had handled that and, and seemed to speak extemporaneously. And he's more frequently seen on Chinese television speaking extemporaneously. So his style is to... Um, is to appear more relaxed in the way that he handles public appearances. Does it make you more op more optimistic about his his ability to accomplish his reform agenda and Li Keqiang's reform agenda? Uh, he shows the self confidence that you would want to see in a top leader who faces very serious uh, both domestic and foreign challenges. Uh, you wouldn't want him to appear lacking in self confidence. But he handles in a way that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, grate on anybody's uh, uh, nerves. So, my, I, I have met with him on numerous, not numerous occasions, but on five or six occasions before he became the top leader in China. And my judgment was that he had a style that we Americans would find uh, easy to work with. Uh, Jeff, you might want to add something. No, nothing to add, really. I, I completely agree with what uh, Faith just said. I mean, you know, obviously, at the end of the day, substance is going to count more than style. But, uh, but you know, the Chinese system, you've got a, a power bureau standing committee, now seven, formerly nine, uh, that ultimately makes decisions. And um, the, 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 the process has always been somewhat opaque to the outside world, but normally it has been... Uh, Consensus-driven, certainly under Hu Jintao was consensus-driven. Uh, the impression we have is that uh, Xi Jinping may be more prepared to try to drive uh, towards consensus rather than simply accept uh, a consensus that emerges from the body. Uh, so in that sense, the, the style may, may prefigure a, a more assertive uh, approach to policy. At the end of the meetings, we announced that both sides announced that President Xi has invited President Obama to visit China. What's going to determine when that occurs, and is there going to be any discussion of things that need to happen before that visit occurs? Well, I think that it won't happen. It won't be this year, I assume. Um, it's. I don't think. I wouldn't put it, Steve, in terms of things that have to happen. I don't think either side is thinking happily. 
uh, about the need to create the right atmosphere or the need to the other side to address some specific set of concerns. I, I think, it, frankly, it has more to do with uh, uh, the schedules of the two gentlemen, the, their political and personal schedules. Uh, President Obama visits Asia every, uh, every fall uh, for the APEC and the EAS meeting, either once or twice, depending upon whether they're in close proximity. Uh, it would be, uh, I think, it would, you know, no one in the White House has said this, but I think it would be natural to think about the, the next time Obama goes to China to be in conjunction with an EAS or an APEC meeting. Um, my assumption is that the Chinese expect uh, Obama to go to China before she comes back here. I, I, I would make one additional point. Um, I think the administration has been uh, in the handling of this summit. When we do something unique with China at the summit level, we can cause all sorts of concerns about other countries uh, who don't want U.S.-China condominiums uh, just the way they don't want U.S.-China confrontation. But my sense is the administration handled this very professionally, uh, uh, briefing our friends and allies very quickly uh, in connection uh, with the summit. So I think that's very important. Uh, there have been times in the past when we have neglected to uh, to do this as as promptly as we should, and that has aroused suspicions about what the United States is up to. But I think in this case that we have uh, uh, taken the, the, the proper steps to try to minimize that possibility. This time they spent alone, you know, or just walking with the interpreters. Did they go over different stuff than they did when, you know, the other Donalyn and Kerry and, you know, Evan and Danny were present? Well, you'll have to ask uh, President Xi and President Obama that question because no, others no, don't know. No indication. Of, and what goes on when two presidents are alone talking? That's a great question, Steve. <laughs> we're not getting an answer to. <laughs> Should Michelle have been there? There was a lot of talk on Chinese Weibo about them. Um, no, they, uh, when they scheduled the meeting, they knew that it was at a time when she couldn't be there. Uh, so it was scheduled with that knowledge. Uh, it wasn't scheduled with the assumption she would be there. It was scheduled with the assumption she would not be there. Should she have been there? Should she have changed her schedule? If she hadn't had a conflict of some sort, uh, uh, I think she probably would have been there. But uh, it, she has commitments just the way other people do, and uh, uh, the, having the First Ladies there was not the point of the summit. Can you take yourself, last question, then I'm going to open it to the floor. If, if I mean, we were all around when Nixon visited, and there was this change of strategic direction. I think at the time, people knew that this was an enormous change, and that we look back now 40 years ago, and we kind of, at the time, you knew this was historic. Do you think 40 years from now, we're going to look at this as kind of having taken this strategic drift that was occurring, and redirected it in, the, in a better direction? you think historians will look at this as an as a, uh, incredibly important meeting? Well, we can't judge that at this time because we are four years uh, after the fact. If we are successful, if the two presidents and the two countries are successful in doing what the summit is trying to do, which is exactly what you referred to, 
uh, strengthen, move us away from a dangerous drift toward growing strategic rivalry toward one in which cooperation outweighs um, um, points of difference between us, uh, then it will be a historic shift in the relationship. Because, as, as I said in my earlier comments, I really think there was a disturbing drift toward growing strategic rivalry, both in terms of how the publics were viewing the relationship, but also in terms of the behavior of our respective militaries and in other areas that are potentially damaging if left unaddressed. Uh, but I think that uh, we are at the very beginning of the process of trying to move the relationship in that direction, and we'll need a sense of, uh, of we'll need to calibrate at each step of the road whether we are sustaining the progress that is necessary. But, uh, Steve, Steve, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's too much of an analogy between uh, Nixon Mao and this. I mean, Nixon Mao was a fundamental, you know, you know, earth-shaking transformation of geopolitics. It was a, a reversal of uh, the 25 years of history, a reversal of alliances. Um, uh, uh, everyone had to adjust to it, including the Soviet Union, the Japanese, Taiwan, uh, every country in Asia. Uh, it was uh, it was just a, a new landscape that they were creating entirely. Uh, now what you have is what Steve has described as a, a drift. Um, but the drift, you know, the the direction in which the two presidents want to go, in which the two countries want to go, is not a, a radically new direction uh, in terms of the policies that they've articulated and the policies that they think they've been pursuing. Uh, it's just that the, the, you know, the negative factors uh, have been piling up, and there was a feeling that they needed to send a, a, a strong set of signals from the top about the direction that they wanted this relationship to go, but they were not not fundamentally setting a new course, but rather sending a message down through their ranks that you know, perhaps not everyone has heard us. This is the course we're on. Uh, I completely agree with that. I think Jeff put it better than I did. Uh, it really is an effort to reinforce the direction in which they had wanted the relationship to go, but it wasn't going in that direction. Did you miss not being there, Jeff? Since you only recently left, I mean, it was kind of, you know, not so recently anymore. But it's fun to be there for the meeting, but not for the preparations and the work <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> let me open the, uh, let me, uh, operator, we can start taking some questions now, since I won't use up all of our guests' valuable time. Yes, sir. At this time, we will open the floor for questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key, followed by the one key on your touchtone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. Again, dial star 1 to ask a question. Our first question comes from Paul Eckert. Uh, hi. Uh, good afternoon, gentlemen, and thanks for doing this. <coughs> I, uh, you, you, uh, I think Jeff Bader was mentioned about the cyber part of things, and I've, I've always tried to stress that uh, the IPR piece is more important uh, and, and, and more what the U.S. is talking about when it complains than the other. And I'm wondering in this context if these, the spectacular uh, flight to Hong Kong of Mr. Snowden and all the NSA stuff, how does that set us up in dealing with China on cyber going forward, on, on, not on so much on the IPR side, but does it, for example, give China sort of a propaganda windfall? Does it give it more leverage? Or does it give it a, an opportunity to change the subject, which is sometimes a frustrating aspect of this discussion? Thanks. 
Well, I, I think that, look, what President Obama wanted to do was make it unequivocally clear that this is a central issue for him and for the administration and precisely the IP piece. Um, uh, he was very, uh, well, I won't, I won't speak to what he said there, but we all know the other pieces of the issue uh, have to do with, uh, with espionage and with potential sabotage of infrastructure. And that is not what he chose to talk about because clearly in the relationship with China, it's the IP piece uh, that's critical. And also, it's, uh, frankly, in our relationship with China, it's asymmetric. Um, there's nothing that, uh, that Mr. Snowden has done that goes to the IP uh, issue. Of course, he's, uh, he's talked in the last day or two, I guess, to English-language press there about, uh, about U.S. activities uh, directed against China. Um, that will not be news to the Chinese. Uh, they, in fact, have been asserting that's been going on all along, and I didn't see anything that stood and said that will make any Chinese smack his forehead, say, my goodness, uh, I'm shocked. Uh, as you indicate, it, uh, it may probably be useful uh, from a propaganda point of view uh, in terms of reframing the public uh, discussion. But, you know, Obama made it very clear he's not interested in a propaganda discussion uh, on the overall issue, he's interested very specifically on the IP piece. So if the Chinese do that, they're, they're essentially uh, turning their back on, on the core issue uh, that he was raising. Thank you. Thank you. As a reminder, dial star 1 to ask a question. We are currently holding for questions. Do you think the issue of the access to the New York Times and Bloomberg came up in the discussions, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, treatment of U.S. journalists and ability, but both treatment of journalists and the ability of Chinese to access the Internet. You think that was one of the issues which the President raised with President Xi, which our President raised with President Xi? Uh, I can't answer that, Steve. I don't, I, I do not know. I'm, I'm, of course, familiar with the issue and the Chinese conduct in this area is obviously very disturbing. Uh, I am sure it's been raised by the U.S. government uh, with the Chinese on a number of occasions, but I don't know if it came up in this occasion. Dave, any idea? Uh, no idea. Uh, except that I think the goal of the summit was to um, keep the conversations at a higher level. Uh, those issues are important, as Jeff has commented, and they have been raised by the government through official channels. But for the presidents, my guess is that they were trying. The only time that would have come up is if it were being used to illustrate some uh, particular point. Uh, and Obama, you know, this new great power relationship and the concept of adhering to international norms. So our, you know, President Obama's view of the new great power relationship is, okay, we should have it, we should avoid the, the Thucydides trap, but does that mean that China needs to treat? Well, I think one of the positive outcomes of the summit was the agreement that we need uh, uh, to establish ground rules in areas that we haven't previously had ground rules in. And conceivably, that sort of issue could arise at some point in, in discussing the ground rules. But uh, based on the press briefings and other things that have come out of the summit, uh, the cyber 
area is one of the areas um, of the issues where both sides agree that we don't have adequate ground rules uh, to guide conduct in these areas. Uh, but I think the earlier question was very right. In, in the real issue is theft of intellectual property, and that can be done um, in numerous ways. Most recently, the focus has been on using cyber attacks in order to uh, steal intellectual property. But the real issue is stealing intellectual property from the United States, which we consider is fundamental to our economic you know, success as a country and therefore is an unfriendly act. Thank you. Our next question comes from Jonathan Lowitz. Any potential harm done at, at the summit, particularly in terms of some of our other friends and allies uh, in the area of China, or whether it was a win-win-win for all involved? Let me take an opening shot at that one. Um, yeah, as State indicated, there's a long history of U.S.-China summits and reactions of neighbors to them, um, and uh, there's often high anxiety uh, in the neighborhood. There's invariably high anxiety in Taiwan uh, and often uh, in Japan and other countries in the area. Uh, this time was somewhat different. Um, Taiwan, I think there was almost no anxiety that was visible because the relationship between Beijing and Taipei has been on a solid basis, and uh, Washington has handled its relations with Taipei well in the last years, and I just don't think there was concern uh, in Taipei that there would be some developments that they would regard as detrimental to their interest or as a sellout. I think only the only place where there really was uh, uh, a fairly high degree of anxiety before the summit was Japan, uh, and that's because Japanese-Chinese relations have been so fraught uh, with tension in the last in the last year, uh, specifically on the uh, islands dispute in the East China Sea, um, and the U.S. is whether it wants to be or not uh, a part of it because of our security commitment uh, under the mutual security treaty with Japan. Um, and Japanese-Chinese relations have been essentially frozen since the. Uh, Japanese central government purchased the islands last summer. Uh, so, uh, and the Japanese almost invariably uh, compare the state of their relationship uh, with the state of the U.S. relationship with China and are always looking for signs that uh, they are being treated better or worse. So there was some anxiety. Uh, I think the administration, I know the administration uh, briefed the Japanese uh, immediately uh, upon completion of the summit. Uh, my understanding is that uh, President Obama has spoken to Prime Minister Abe, and I imagine that they'll uh, see each other uh, again soon on the margins of the next multilateral meeting. So I think that the Japanese um, uh, are fairly calm uh, at this point. I think the rest of the region, um, the only other country that was, uh, I should have mentioned, the only other country that was very uneasy about this summer was North Korea. Uh, North Korea saw their ability to drive a wedge between the two most important countries uh, in the environment um, vanishing. Uh, and that's why you saw the North Koreans uh, hastily uh, stop uh, their antics about nuclear war uh, and uh, rush a senior general off to Beijing, uh, bearing offers uh, to resume talks with South Korea just as this meeting was about to occur. Uh, so 
when the U.S. and China move uh, dramatically in this fashion, it does uh, it does shake up the the landscape. Not as much as Mao Nixon, um, but in this case, uh, certainly with North Korea. How do you think they dealt with kind of the differing narratives that you have? You know what State was describing as since the financial crisis. You know the American narrative. We've seen a more assertive China. We've seen it. You know in the Nan Sha Shi Sha Diao Yu Dao, and therefore we have these problems. And the Chinese narrative is totally conflicting with that. Where from President Xi down to the spokespeople for the Ministry of National Defense and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, it's wait a minute. We're we're just reacting to what the Philippines, the Vietnamese, the Japanese have done, that they're changing the rules. When you have such differing narratives and you're sitting across the table, how does that work? Well, the narrative that you just cited, Steve, that State was talking about, uh, is not one that the leaders or senior officials would ever uh, allude to. Um, it's one that scholars uh, uh, and you know, elites on the two sides have constructed uh, to explain attitudes and events of the last few years, but you would never hear a Chinese leader. Um, uh, in fact, what you hear is the opposite. You hear a Chinese leader saying, um, uh, some people say that the U.S. is in a state of decline. We don't believe that. Um, but I, I think what you would have heard in this meeting is not so much a, a discussion of that kind, which as I say never occurs, but rather... Uh, a discussion in which um, President Obama uh, was uh, sitting at the top of an American, you know, American economy uh, that is back on the right track, uh, and the Chinese know it, uh, and the Chinese have seen what's happened in the last year in the United States, and they've seen uh, the, in particular, the uh, revolution in the energy sector, and the Chinese have concluded. Um, that uh, the U.S. is on a uh, on a positive track, and that the U.S. has put the, uh, its principal problems behind it. Um, the Chinese are looking themselves at some uh, difficult period uh, in facing social and economic problems and reduced economic growth. So the imbalance that the scholars were talking about preceding the 2008-2009 period, uh, that imbalance is no longer perceived by the two sides. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Thank you. Our next question comes from Betty Lynn. Hi, thank you, uh, Betty Lynn of the World Journal. Could uh, Mr. Bader elaborate on the uh, exchanges on Taiwan and the atmosphere? Uh, was there a real uh, conversation? Uh, I, I would say that it was a... Uh, a conversation that we've seen before. Okay, you know, there is always a Taiwan conversation when our leaders meet. Sometimes it's at a time of tension, in which case it's uh, uh, the conversation reflects the atmosphere, and sometimes it's fairly, uh, fairly perfunctory, uh, and with the Chinese simply reminding us that this is unequivocally their most important issue, and that we should not be careless about it. Uh, I would say it was the latter kind of discussion, um, where they were not specific asks uh, on either side, not specific problems that needed to be addressed, um, but, uh, uh, but the Chinese wanted clearly to remind us that you know, 
don't mess up on this issue because this is the most important to us. But uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't call it a conversation that was different from previous conversations uh, in which someone said, you know, look, let's let's rethink this whole matter. I, I think President Obama's reference to the 20, you know, 3 million people in Taiwan who ultimately are going to be the determining voice on the future of the reunification issue, I think that is a more, uh, is a less formulaic uh, approach than we're accustomed to in the Taiwan conversation uh, and, if you will, a more conversational approach than, than simple recitation of uh, existing positions. Thank you. Our next question comes from Ryan Burkhart. Yes, I was wondering if either of you believe that uh, in the near future there will be any uh, movement toward perhaps creating uh, a treaty or an agreement on strategic nuclear weapons similar to those uh, between the U.S. and the Soviet Union and Russia. Uh, I was not briefed uh, on any uh, discussions touching in that area. My own judgment is that we are not at a, a point with the Chinese where we would uh, likely in the near future to begin addressing that question. It could come up down the road. Thank you. Our next question comes from Marga Landman. Thank you very much. I have heard people saying that it was problematic that President Xi did not stay at Sunnylands, that he and his party were in a hotel. Beyond the optics, do you think there was any issue there? Well, look, it's, whenever the President of the United States goes to China, there's an invitation invariably for him and his delegation to stay at the Diaoyutai Guest House, um, which is where many foreign leaders stay. And typically, in my experience, the state has a lot more experience than I do on these visits. Uh, typically, the President of the United States does not do so. They typically stay, uh, the delegation stays in a hotel. Uh, the uh, U.S. delegation has all manner of requirements for security, for uh, communications, for security communications, uh, uh, and for you know, how we want our uh, bodies to be deployed. Um, and the Chinese are no less complicated, no less demanding. So uh, I, I fully expect that the U.S. side thought there was nothing unusual about the Chinese choosing uh, to house themselves elsewhere, uh, that the hospitality was shown graciously in the offer, but, but the, the refusal to accept that hospitality was not seen as uh, insulting in any way. That would be my assumption statement. Hmm? I think that's exactly right. Uh, the additional factor is... Sunnylands uh, is not structured to be able to house the entire Chinese delegation, so it resulted in split accommodations. That is always awkward with any uh, uh, delegation. So that factor alone, I think, would have uh, caused the Chinese to prefer to stay in a hotel. Thank you. Our final question comes from Paul Eckert. Hello again, and sorry to be a repeater. I just joined the queue hoping I could get one in. On economic reform, since we, we have a new team in China, <clears throat> we, we had, we've had some hints um, from President Xi and other officials about taking another look at the monopoly position of SOEs, a hint of interest in the TPP, as you said, not enjoying it, but learning more about it. Uh, going forward to the, in the months, is the, is the SNED a good chance to gauge whether and if the SNED is being led by Mr. Wang Yang from 
Guangdong, who has a reformer uh, reputation. Is it too early to know uh, the program? In other words, are we going to have to wait till the fall into the next plenary session of the party before the real meat gets on the bones of, of, of these uh, somewhat uh, rooted reforms? I think the SNED is not likely to be the place where the Chinese would lay out their uh, reform plans. Uh, I do think the third plenum is probably the deadline the Chinese are working against in order to um, come up with the reforms. Uh, my own guess is that SOE reform is a troublesome enough issue for the Chinese that it's not likely to be in the first tranche of reforms that they roll out uh, that will require further study and development of what they want to do in that area. I think the Chinese have already signaled to a fair degree the kinds of issues that they're going to be looking at uh, in their reform package, uh, Lee Kijang's speech and uh, presentation by the National Development Reform Commission. And I think as State says, state-owned enterprise reform is still controversial, so that will take some time. But they've talked already about state and local tax uh, authority. They've talked about financial service. Uh, financial service sector reform. They talked about they talked about uh, decreasing the role of the government uh, in the economy generally and improving investments in particular, uh, and increasing the role of the market. Um, they've uh, uh, they've talked about uh, uh, energy and environment issues, uh, sort of rationalization of policy in those areas. And they've already highlighted. Uh, those, and I expect that state says the third time is when they'll roll it all out. It's a, the, the release of the FISA, <clears throat> you know, the leak of the FISA materials, do you think that affected the discussions at all? I don't think it did at all. I don't Myself. Yeah, I don't think so either. No. So he had to answer questions during the... It affected the way he had to handle because I noticed, for example, Tom Donovan in his briefing had to take... There were questions asked that referred to somebody else to answer. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the summit discussions, I don't think it had any impact. No, I agree I'd be very surprised if the Chinese raised it in any fashion. So the expectation for the next visit, it will not be a state visit also. When Obama goes to China, it will be an informal visit that will look a lot like the Sunnylands visit. I think that's too big an assumption to, to make, Steve. They did talk about... The, uh, the desire to duplicate Sony lands in China, uh, but I think there, there are different ways you can do that. You can still have a state visit with a rival ceremony and state banquet, but you could have a, you know some sort of an off-site uh, off-site encounter that would be more informal, built on uh, to the margins of such a uh, uh, such a visit. I simply I don't I don't think they've thought at all at this point about how to arrange it. The um, the bench. <laughs> Where did that idea come from? It's a wonderful kind of interesting gift. Have any well, insight on that? It, look, it's better than the DVDs that Gordon Brown got, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I, there's been a lot of thought given to gifts in the in the last few years. I think Secretary Clinton sort of raised our game in that regard considerably, along with Ambassador Marshall. Um, uh, after the somewhat, a somewhat uh, cheap and tawdry history in this area, and of course the Chinese are uh, are 
past masters at uh, at gift giving. So I, I think the you know I, I don't know. I mean, obviously it had a California connection with the sequoias, uh, the redwoods, the redwoods, you know, yeah. Uh, uh, and so some thought went into it, but uh, I don't know exactly what the the uh, iconography or what the symbolism was meant to convey. Maybe sitting together on a bench. I don't know. Yeah. Then they had the photos of them sitting together on yeah. the bench. I thought yeah. it was a marvel, very yeah. unusual for the for a U.S. government to figure out such a good <laughs> gift. <laughs> I think we've run out of our allotted time, so let me just thank Dave and Jeff for what has been an incredibly informative discussion.